We turn in the scriptures again to the book of Exodus. Exodus and the ten, the third chapter, sorry, the third chapter. Exodus chapter 3. And we'll just read the first ten, cha- ten verses of this chapter. Exodus chapter 3, beginning to read at verse 1. Exodus, the third chapter, verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the mountain and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land, To a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt." Let us just bow our heads again a moment in prayer as we just ask God's blessing on us now. Lord, as we come to hear your word, we come up with that spirit of Samuel of old and we say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. Speak to us, we pray. Teach us. We come ready and willing to receive what you will have to say to us. Insofar as our ears are deaf to you, or our eyes blind, or our Feet are tied up in knots, unwilling to run in obedience to your commands. Lord, unstop our ears, open our eyes, loosen our feet, we pray. Enable us to hear. Enable us to see the glories of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. When Lydia, our youngest, um, is very upset... There's only one person that she wants, and that's her mummy. And there's no substitute for that presence. The simple fact is that sometimes someone's presence really does make all the difference. And this evening, I want us to think about the presence of God. God appears to Moses. He is present with him. He has come down. 
Now initially this figure is called the angel of the Lord, but it quickly becomes clear as it does in the other times in scripture when this figure, the angel of the Lord, appears that in fact this is none other than the living God. He's called the angel of the Lord, verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. But then, look at verse 4, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush. God is present then here with Moses. And I want to see this evening what this event teaches us about the presence of God and its effects. And we're going to look at three things. Three things that the presence of God does in the passage before us this evening. First of all, God's presence destroys. Secondly, God's presence saves. And then thirdly and finally, God's presence preserves. Well, firstly then... God's presence destroys. Stephen Fry, when asked what he would do if he were to meet God, quite famously said in response that he would say, How dare you create a world in which there is such misery that is not our fault? And there are many others, sadly, who would probably echo what Stephen Fry said there. But there's a problem with that. And that is that the God who would need to exist in order for, to make this kind of scenario plausible for Stephen Fry to stand before God and say this is a figment of Stephen Fry's imagination. Stephen Fry has in his mind a God who could be cowed, a God against whom perhaps a clever response could silence him. A God, in fact, maybe rather like you and I. The problem is that the real God, the God who is, the God revealed to us in Scripture is not like this at all. We find the real God in our passage before us this evening. And what happens when Moses meets him? Well, look at verse 5. Then he, then God said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Now as far as Stephen Fry would be concerned, Moses probably had plenty to complain about. His people, the Israelites, were slaves in Egypt. We're reminded about that in the chapter immediately previous to this. Exodus 2.23 During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and cried out for help. But Moses doesn't charge up here. Moses doesn't come up to God with a list of complaints. Rather, when faced with a true and living God, verse 6, Moses is afraid. God appears here in a flame of fire, we read verse 2. And that's appropriate. Fire is, is dangerous. It's uncontrollable. Usually, come on to this again in our next point, but usually, destructive. It's not safe. God's command to Moses reinforces that reality. That God also is not safe, at least not for Moses. God cannot be controlled. God God cannot be approached without care. Now let me ask you, is that your conception of God? Is your conception of God the God from whom Moses hides his face here? Is it the God to whom Moses cannot even draw near lest he be consumed? Perhaps you're not so bold in your atheism as Stephen Fry. 
Maybe you also have an idea of God in your mind which does not equate with the God of Scripture. Maybe you have invented a God in your mind. Maybe the God you have is also a figment of your imagination. A God who is tame, who can be controlled, who can be brushed aside, to whom one can stroll up without consequence. Know this, that there is a God. The God who created all that is. The God who sustains it. The God who plans all that is. The God who providentially works his purposes out in the world. Do you imagine that you can get the better of him? We might read books and watch films. and There's a certain type of action film, isn't there, where it seems like everyone's going to die. The world's going to come to an end only at the last minute. Some group of daredevil heroes or some genius scientist comes up with the answer that gets them all out of the problem. Humanity cannot be quenched, that's the kind of message. There's nothing like that when faced with the living God. He knows all things, he has ordained whatsoever comes to pass. There's nothing you can do to surprise him, there's nothing you can do to outwit him, there's nothing, there's no secret scientific thing that, that you've thought about but God has overlooked. Now, there is no escaping the judgment of God. Let me ask you, will you behold this God this evening, as Moses does here? Will you also, as Moses does, fear him? Will you hide your face from him? You are, by nature, a sinner. That's the truth of the matter. God is of purer eyes than to behold iniquity. He hates all that is evil. But it's more than that. It's not that... God just somehow really doesn't like sin in the same way that I don't really like margarine. It's not that. It's contrary to who he is. The Bible says that God is light. And where God is revealed, he reveals all. And he lightens all. And when God comes, where there is darkness, it flees away. It ceases to be. For if it continued in existence, the light of God will be sullied. So for poor sinful Moses to come upon God in his sinful state risks obliteration. Have you ever come in on a snowy day? Your boots and your coat are covered with snow. And you hang your coat up, you put your boots by the fire and within a few minutes you wouldn't know you'd been out in the snow. It's gone. The heat has evaporated it. And God who is light removes all darkness as fire removes the snow. And this is fearful. Do you understand this? Don't imagine that there is no one to whom you will give an answer. Don't imagine that God is, is like a pussycat and as long as you tickle his tummy you'll be fine. If you realise the fearful nature of the living and true God as revealed in scripture, as Moses does here. But have you also realised this is the very thing that makes God Wonderful. Maybe our instinct isn't this. We hear of a God of judgment. We hear of a God who will obliterate us if we draw near to him. And our instinct is that that sounds pretty bad. But we realise the reason that God is of purer eyes than to behold evil is because he is light. Then we see that it is because he is in fact the most perfect being. He is the being in which there is no evil. Isn't that what we want? 
Go into the world, you'll send no end of people. So you'll find no end of people selling philosophies. Oh, you follow this political ideology, and the problems in the world will be solved. You take this identity, and you'll feel better. Buy this product, and your problems will be solved. All of these things will disappoint, but God will not. Here is the one in whom there is no evil. The one from whom the very concept of goodness flows. What would it mean to know that one? What would it mean to approach to that one? To have fellowship with that one? Oh, this is fearful. But something to long for in it as well. To know this one. In whom there is no evil. The God who is light. Well, that's the first point. God's presence destroys. Secondly, God's presence saves. A moment ago I said that it is appropriate that God's presence should be linked with fire. But actually, there's something strange about it. Let me just turn to Exodus 24:17. Here we, we find the kind of description we would expect to find when we find God linked with fire. Let me read this verse to you. Exodus 24:17. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. That's what God is like. He's a consuming, devouring fire. Our idea summarized for us in Hebrews 12, 29 as well. Our God is a consuming fire. And that's really the point I've been making in that first point we've just finished. That's what God is like. God's character, the consuming fire who would obliterate Moses should he presume to come too close. That is seen here in this passage. But amazingly, in relation to this bush... That is not what is seen. On the contrary, what Moses sees in this revelation of God is remarkable for the opposite reason. Read again verses 2 and 3. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him, that's to Moses, in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Why the bush is not burned. For all that God is a consuming fire. For all that God's presence would destroy Moses should he dare come too close. In the burning bush we are faced fundamentally with a consuming God who does not consume. That's actually quite earth shattering. God has come down. He comes down in revelation, revealing himself in his judgment, in his deliverance, in his holiness, in his faithfulness. But if what we have just said is true, that God is a consuming fire, if what God has just said to Moses is true, then surely when God interacts with this fallen world, it should be consumed. But it is not. How can this be? Well, there are depths to this image of the bush, and we can't go into all of it today. But at least part of what this is about can be recognized by understanding who it was that appeared to Moses here. Who was in the bush? We're told that it was the angel or the messenger of the Lord. But we've already confirmed that this was no mere angel. 
This messenger of the Lord was in fact none other than God himself. And if that's the case, can this be any other, that, other one than the one who is elsewhere called the Word of God? The one through whom God speaks, the revelation of God to man, the mediator between God and man. The divine Son who became incarnate in Christ Jesus. Here we have God the Son speaking to Moses. And here I would suggest is the answer to our riddle. How can a holy consuming fire descend upon the earth and not consume it? The answer is found in Christ. The answer is found in the one who has brought heaven and earth together. The one who was God, the second person of the Holy Trinity... Who took upon himself a human nature. We should never, be, we should never cease to be amazed by the, the wonder of that. That God became man. That in the wisdom of God the person of son took to himself. Added to himself a human nature. Not, not took a human body and possessed it with his divine nature. Not indwelt a human man. Not merged his divine nature with a human nature. But no. In addition, took a full and perfect human nature to his full and perfect, in addition to his full and perfect divine nature. And in him, that human nature is restored. We're in the second book of Moses here, Exodus. If we were to look back at the first book of Moses, Genesis, Genesis 3 8, we would find the Lord God walking in the garden, ready to have fellowship with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. And the implication is that that was the normal routine at that point. It was normal for mankind in the beginning to have fellowship with God. For God to come down. For him to reveal himself and for it to be safe. For it to be natural. It's not that humanity and God don't go together. It's sin that is the problem. It's our unrighteousness in comparison to God's holiness and righteousness. And Christ, the God-man, who has taken to himself this human nature, is holy as God is holy, for he is God. And so in Jesus, the perfect God-man, that link can be restored. So there exists again a human nature that can have fellowship with God. Restored in the mystery of the incarnation. It's more than even simply that. It's not simply that, that now there exists a link between God and man and that's wonderful. But it doesn't really affect us because, you know, okay, it's, it's great for, for Jesus, but what effect does it have on us? No, it's not that. Because the God-man, he joins himself with those who, trusts in, who trust in him. He unites them to himself, as we spoke about this morning. For the one who was holy and without sin took upon himself the consuming fire of God's wrath. And he did so for those who were sinners. He did so for you and me if we will trust in him. That's what was happening on the cross 2,000 years ago. He's taking upon himself sin. Your sins if you will trust in his death. Turning from sin to him. Let me ask you, will you do that this evening? If you've never known Christ, will you turn to him this evening? You... Come and have fellowship with that God who is a consuming fire, but who nonetheless has made a way through Christ for you to draw near to him in fellowship with him. Perhaps you came this evening thinking you were a Christian, but as we've gone on, you've realized you weren't. Will you hear this message? 
Because of this, the fire of God does not consume. Because of this, we can draw near. A warning to Moses no longer applies. In the Old Testament, this idea of separation from God, the refrain all the way through. Separation, distance, showing how a fallen human nature is incompatible with God. The temple, the tabernacle, they've got the holy place, the most holy place. And the most holy place, only the high priest can go. And he can go, only go once a year. But what happens when Jesus dies? The veil of the temple is rent in twain. Access to the holiest. For in Christ God has brought us near. Restoring human nature by the incarnation. Dealing with sin on the cross. So that his wrath will no longer consume us. Because it has been consumed in Christ. And then by his his spirit sent at Pentecost. Purging the sinful soul of sin. John baptized with water. But Jesus baptizes with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And by the power of that fire he does purge. But he purges the believer of sin by sanctification. Working within us to restore the true image of Christ. Not perfectly, immediately, but progressively. And then ultimately and perfectly in the world to come. Or will you look to this one? Will you look to this one who has brought us near to God? I said, didn't I, at the end of the previous point, that God's holiness is wonderful. It's the very fact that sin cannot remain before him that makes fellowship with him to be desired. And there is a way to this one. Will you turn to him? Will you cry to him? Will you behold with Moses this evening the bush? The assumption today is so often that there is no meaning in the world. That everything is just blind mechanical forces. But here we find God come down. God working in the world. Will you behold him this evening? If you become a Christian... I can't promise you that you'll have the best house ever. You'll get a new car. That your bank account will be overflowing. But I can promise that you will enter into fellowship with the living and true God. That no longer you will be estranged from your maker. That you will meet and rest in that one without whom you cannot find rest. Because you were made for him. You know this Christ this evening. Perhaps you are a Christian. You're taken up with the things of this world. Will you realize the, the joy of what Christ has worked? Of God coming down. You realize what a privilege and a joy it is to have fellowship with God. What a privilege and a joy it is for us to be here this evening on the Lord's Day. To gather as his people. Where angels are present as the church worships. As we draw near to God. Will you realize what a joy it is? What a privilege it is? Well, first of all, we've had God's presence destroys. We've had God's presence saves. But now, thirdly and finally, God's presence preserves. Because if we see Christ in this bush, we also see the church. We see those who are united to Christ. And this is actually the application of this image of the burning bush that became dominant among Protestants. Cemented really by the fires of persecution at the time of the Reformation. The French Protestants, the Huguenots, they adopted the burning bush as their seal and symbol. 
Confessing their hope of God that just as it was for for Israel in slavery under the furnace of God's tribulation, so also for them, for the Huguenots, though they were burning under persecution quite literally, yet they would not be consumed. And then following on from the the killing times as they're known in Scotland and the, the glorious revolution as it's called, the restoration of Presbyterianism in Scotland, the Church of Scotland adopted the burning bush as its symbol. And from there it has gone out to many other Presbyterian churches, though not, at least officially, I, I don't think, the EPCEW. Just as in this burning bush we see Christ's enabling of the earthly to be preserved in contact with the divine, the bush is his human nature, if you like, the fire is his divine. So also we see the church united with the divine, but now preserved not simply in spite of the divine nature joined to it, but because of it. It is God's presence with his people that gives hope. This becomes true because of Christ and his work, so that those who are united to him can never be overcome. And I think that Moses would have appreciated this interpretation, this application. You know, Plants are are frequently seen as images of the church in the Old Testament. By pure coincidence, we read a passage that did that in Isaiah 27, where the church, the people of God, are likened to a vineyard. We'll be singing at the end a psalm that does that in Psalm 80. And Moses himself compared slavery in Egypt to fire, Deuteronomy 4.20. And that, again, became a frequent image in the Old Testament. And furthermore, God's message here that that God is about to deliver to Moses is a message of deliverance from slavery. So that the connection of the delivery of the burning bush from its burning would have been natural. Here then I would suggest, as our reformed forefathers have done before us, we see the oppression of God's people. But it is God who is the refining fire. And while he works his purposes, his people will not and cannot be consumed. In this image set before Moses here, God's purposes for Israel are seen. Yes, Israel is in the fire, but it is the Lord's refining fire. And it will not consume Israel. Rather, Israel is actually being built up by it. Remember this. though, Though times may be difficult, God is present with his church. And it will not be overcome. How must Israel have felt in slavery in Egypt? Subject to cruel taskmasters. There seemed no way out. There was no hope. There was nothing around the corner that made it look like maybe slavery would be abolished. There were no political movements. There was nobody complaining about the human rights of Hebrew slaves. There was nobody making the economic argument against slavery. There was none of this. If anyone remembered the old promises to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, it must have seemed, humanly speaking, like a fairy tale. And yet, how does God announce himself to Moses? Verse 6, and he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. God has not forgotten his covenant. He has not forgotten his promises. In fact, all this had been foretold. God had told Moses' ancestor Abraham that his descendants would spend 400 years in slavery in Egypt. God had told Jacob that it would be in Egypt when Jacob went with those 70 souls to be with Joseph. God told Jacob that it would be in Egypt that his descendants would be formed into a great nation. 
God was in fact using the affliction in Egypt to bring that about. Let me read verse 12 of Exodus chapter 1 to you. This is what was happening. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. And the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. God was using the very fires of affliction and persecution. The very things that made people look around and say, how can the church survive? He was using those very things to build up the church. To strengthen it. Take this as an encouragement. Jesus has said, I shall build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It's possible to, to look at our own land particularly and to despair. To wonder how the church can grow. To see the indoctrination of young people. To see the land given over to pornography and sensuality. To see greed and covetousness praised as virtues. And to wonder, how can light come? It's possible to see a coming generation of young people, even in the church. And to think, how can they be preserved when such things are set against them? Maybe humanly speaking that is true. But yet God does preserve his church. That's what his presence with the church does. Take comfort from that. God is not bound by time. He does not change. He's not dependent on anything outside of himself. And though the world changes, he does not change. He saw all of this ahead of time. He purposed it even. Not one thing happens, but it is part of the almighty God's sovereign purposes in the world. And he has promised, he promised to Israel that he would bring them to a land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, and he would do that. He's promised to his church that he will build it, that he will preserve it. Can you rest in that? We don't need to understand it all, do we? God is over all. He's seen it all. He's planned it all. He has purposed it all. We do this with other things in our lives, don't we? Sometimes we begin things that seem impossible. Learning a language, perhaps. Learning to paint. And perhaps at the beginning it seems too hard. But actually... If you stick at it, particularly under the guidance of an experienced teacher, then eventually you will get there as you you follow the instructions, as you take the baby steps. And and maybe you're never going to to be Rembrandt. But you'll be a lot better than when you started. The wise things under these circumstances is to trust the methods of the teacher. To accept that there is a plan, that this person has been there before, knows what he or she is doing. And that if you follow the advice, you will reap the rewards. Perhaps you would be willing to do this for a human teacher. But will you be willing to do it for the sovereign God overall? Will you rest in him? Will you trust in him? Will you believe him when he says that he has purposed all that comes to pass? That what is happening now is part of his purposes. And that it is part of his purposes to build the church. And this is part of that. What a transformation if we truly believe this. Moses went from seeing this bush, seeing the awesome power and wonder that is God. Having seen that, he went and he worked wonders in Egypt. What a difference it would make for us if we rested in, if we believed, if we had confidence that God is overall, that he is working out his purposes, that he will build his church. We would do what we do with hope. We would not despair as perhaps so often we do.
If you ever have despaired of the world as it is now, of the church as it is now, of the growth of the church, of the coming generation, you repent of that. Because yes, humanly speaking, maybe we don't have the wisdom, but we have a God who is overall, who has purposed to use this and to build his church. And I'm going to conclude now. You've thought about God's presence. Sinners, we are unable to stand before God's presence. But amazingly, in Christ, heaven and earth are brought together so that we can be present with God again. And if God is for, if God is for us, then we have nothing to fear. But he has promised to preserve his people.